ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Hannah Critchlow. This week, genetically modified mosquitoes to halt malaria, a radiation shield for space travellers, and the computer programme that's convinced people they're really talking to a human. Plus, this week marks the 150th anniversary of the birth of Dr Alois Alzheimer. We'll be finding out more about the disease that he gave his name to and playing a new computer game that's meant to teach teenagers about the biology behind the condition. The insistent buzz of mosquitoes isn't just an annoying sound when you're trying to sleep on a summer night. In countries affected by the malaria parasite, which is spread by mosquito bites, it could be deadly. For years, people have been trying to wipe out malaria by using insecticides to control mosquito populations, but they can develop resistance to the chemicals. And the disease still kills hundreds of thousands of people around the world every year. Now scientists at Imperial College London have genetically engineered mosquitoes so that they can only produce male offspring. And that's important because it's the females that bite and spread disease. Katani went to see Nikolai Vinbikla, who led the research, to find out how changing the ratio of males to females can help combat malaria. Well, the idea is if you progressively shift the sex ratio of a population towards males and there are fewer and fewer females in the population, then the overall size of the population will decrease up to a point where the population cannot sustain itself anymore and will actually crash. What did you do to try and skew this sex ratio? We introduced into the mosquito a gene which essentially destroys the X chromosome. As you know, as in humans, so also in mosquitoes, there are two types of sperm produced by males, sperm that carry the Y chromosome and sperm that carry the X chromosome. The sperm that carry the Y chromosome produce sons. The sperm that carry the X chromosome produce daughters. So we found a way to specifically eliminate the sperm that carry the X chromosome so that only the sperm that carry the Y chromosome would be functional and would make it. These males produce only sons. This sounds really clever. How did you do that to target and destroy the X chromosomes? Well, what we found is essentially an Achilles heel, a genetic Achilles heel of the malaria mosquito. There's a certain DNA sequence that is present in many, many copies on the X chromosome only and nowhere else in the mosquito genome. So we use a DNA-cutting enzyme that cuts the chromosome. You can imagine like with a scissor, in many, many places it cuts the chromosome, the X chromosome. So this chromosome becomes destroyed. It's no longer functional. You've got these kind of lines of mosquitoes Mm -hmm. that have these DNA scissors in. 
what happens? Well, then what happens is, as you can imagine, an enzyme that cuts DNA targeting the X chromosome is lethal for most cells. But we are making sure that this gene is active only when sperm are produced. So then what happens is the sperm that would have carried the X chromosome, in those sperm, the X chromosome is destroyed. But the sperm that carry the Y chromosome, they do not have the sequence that we're targeting. So they are totally unaffected. So they are produced normally and transmitted to the female, and you have male offspring. The next generation is mostly all male offspring. They're going to be looking for some ladies. What happens then? (laughs) Well, one thing that we probably should add is that this gene is also transmitted to the offspring, but only to half of the offspring. So half of those males looking for ladies, they will do the same thing again in this generation. They will produce only sons. Over time, progressively, over many generations, there are fewer and fewer females in the population. And eventually, there are no females in the population. The population crashes. So this could be a really fantastic way of basically getting rid of mosquitoes. They're the bane of my life. They always bite me. I hate them. What would be the consequences of completely getting rid of a population of mosquitoes, say, in a, in a, in a town or even a country? There are many. There are 3,500 different species of mosquitoes. We are only targeting one specific species, which is transmits malaria to humans. So that's, in a sense, a much more targeted intervention than, for example, insecticides. That is the current control method, which targets all sorts of insect species. Obviously, this could be fantastic if you could get rid of the mosquito populations and that would eradicate malaria. But how close is this to being something you can roll out? And are there risks of releasing these modified mosquitoes into the wild? This is a very promising technology, but we're still many steps away to rolling this out. We have both technical hurdles to overcome still, but also have to make sure that all aspects of you know, biosafety, ethical concerns and regulatory concerns would be addressed before we go any further with this. The next step is to take these mosquitoes and test them at a large scale. We have tested this technology in, in small population cages, but we have a facility in Italy where we have larger cages that are more field-like controlled environment and there we want to test this technology to see how it performs. And what's it like working with so many mosquitoes around you? Does it make you a bit twitchy? Yeah, some people get quite twitchy, yeah. But yeah, how much do you get bitten? You get bitten once in a while, but it's it's really alright. It would be the same if you go on a camping trip, probably. Nicole Avin Bickler from Imperial College London, talking to Kat Arney. 3,500 species of mosquitoes. That's a lot, isn't it? It's a throwback. I didn't realise there were that many. We're looking away from where the mozzies are and more towards the heavens. One of the biggest dangers while travelling in space is exposure to potentially lethal doses of radiation coming from the sun. These can flare up in bursts during periods of increased solar activity that are known as solar storms. Currently, we have no way of protecting astronauts against them. The Apollo missions in the 60s and 70s avoided them purely by chance. But now the moon may have provided us with an answer. Dark patches on the surface known as lunar swirls have given physicists an idea for a way to shield our spaceships in the future. Ruth Bamford is heading the work at the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory in Oxfordshire. Hello, Ruth. Hello. So, first of all, why is solar radiation a risk? Why is it a problem? Well, this particular type of radiation consists of energetic particles that are more akin to what you would see in a particle accelerator. And they're so fast they can go through the hull of a spaceship and smash the DNA of the astronauts and during a storm so many of these can occur that it's beyond the body's capabilities to repair. And when you say there can be so many of them what's the likelihood of someone on a space journey coming into contact with these sorts of levels of radiation? 
the levels occur during a storm and those storms are intermittent in their occurrence. So on average, the sun will give out two or three of these big events a day during solar maximum and about the same during solar minimum a week. They don't all come our way, but if you are in the way and you're on a long journey for a year and a half to Mars, then the chances of one passing through the spacecraft are too high to be acceptable for the astronaut's safety. And why can't we stop this radiation? Because we can do that on Earth. Well, we have the Earth's magnetic field producing a barrier, a first line of defence, and then we have the Earth's atmosphere. And we can't put large quantities of material on a spacecraft because it would be too heavy. So things like lead or concrete, which was what you might consider make a good shelter on the Earth, won't work in space. And we obviously can't cart those up into space because they're far too heavy. So what could we do instead? Well, we have to get smarter. And uh, this is where the examples of what nature has offered us comes into play. We start with a magnetic field, but if you just use a magnetic field to deflect charged particles, because they're so fast, you'd need an enormous magnetic field to do the job. So what we do, in fact, is we're proposing you gather the substance called plasma from the solar wind and use it, captured by the magnetic field, to help hold back the charged particles by adding an electric field to your magnetic field. OK, well, let's unpick this a little bit. So you've got your spacecraft going around in space. Talk us through the first thing you'd have to create to create this shield you have in mind. What's the first thing you've got to do? Like the Earth, we start off with a magnetic field. So the Earth has a magnetic field. It's a very low-intensity magnetic field even here on the surface of the Earth. But it's still capable of holding back this radiation from space. And the way it does it, and the way we're proposing to be able to put one on a spacecraft, is by gathering the solar wind particles which are in the vacuum of space. You see, between here and Mars, it isn't really a vacuum. In that sense, there's a sparse number of protons and electrons, the component parts of hydrogen atoms that are coming naturally from the sun that are flying off in the solar wind. And we're suggesting that you capture these and hold and control them by the magnetic field that you bring on board with you. So you have a spacecraft which has its own magnetic field. It's generating a bit like the Earth's magnetic field. This will capture some of these particles that are natively floating around in space, these protons and electrons. And once you've got them stuck into this magnetic aura around your spacecraft, then what do you do? Then you've got an electric field helping the magnetic field. And you will produce a narrow electric field some distance from the spacecraft. So the spacecraft is safe from this electric field. And the idea is that much like you would deflect a charging rugby player with an ankle tap or a push to touch, all you need is enough of an electric field that will deflect rather than stop these hazardous energetic particles that would otherwise go through the spacecraft. I see. So the capture of the charged particles in space gives you that electric field which then extends the reach of the protection you've got around your spacecraft so any more stuff that comes flying past gets enough of a push so it's off course and it misses or swerves around your spaceship it doesn't go through your astronauts inside yes that's the idea and during a really big storm you can release some of this plasma yourself from the spacecraft from a gas canister and even for a mission to mars the quantity of gas you would need need be no bigger than, say, a fire extinguisher. 
So you wouldn't need vast quantities. And how would you power the magnetic field in the first place? Would that be solar or nuclear or something to give you the, some source of magnetism to start the process off in the first place? You would need a magnetic field on board the spacecraft and the suggestions are that a superconducting magnet would be the most practical and it would be powered by whatever is powering a manned spacecraft, which currently they suggest it would have to be a nuclear power source because with a manned mission you're going to require quite a lot of power in general. This is theoretical at this stage, isn't it? Have you got any plans to, or any way you can test this? Ah, well, we have tested it in small scale in the laboratory, and we've also been looking at natural mini magnetospheres, as they're called, on the moon. And this has shown that it does actually work, not in space and at the dimensions that we need it to. There's a little feature on the moon, on the eye of the man in the moon, just Auntie's left hand eye, a bit like a tear. It looks like a patch of white on the dark area of the moon and that little patch of white is called Rhinia Gamma and it has been protected by a small patch of magnetic field that naturally occurs on the moon because the moon doesn't have an overall magnetic field of its own and it would appear that for the eons that it has been there that little magnetic anomaly it's been able to keep away all these hazardous particles sufficiently to change the colour of the moon. And that's exactly the same physics that you're going to use. Thank you very much, Ruth Bamford, who is from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory in Oxfordshire. She published that work in the journal Archive. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with me, Hannah Critchlow. This week, a computer programme reportedly passed the Turing test for the first time, tricking a panel of judges who had online conversations with it into believing that they were exchanging messages with another human. This was part of a competition run by Reading University to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the death of the test creator, Alan Turing. Here's your quickfire science on the Turing test with Greer Jackson and Kate Lamble. In 1950, Alan Turing developed a way to test a machine's ability to mimic human behaviour. He called this the Turing test. In the test, a human judge writes to a subject in another room. This subject can be a person or a machine. The aim of the test is for the judge to suss out whether the subject is human or machine, whilst the computer tries to dupe the judge into thinking it's a real person. When creating this test, Turing made a prediction. He thought by the year 2000, machines would be able to fool 30% of human judges in a five-minute test. However, by 1966, a program called ELISA appeared to pass the test. It used keywords from the judges' typed comments and transformed them into new sentences by following a series of rules. Versions of ELISA, now known as chatterbots, are found on the internet today, and they continue to trick people into believing they are human in the hope of gaining sensitive personal data. The latest computer program to have met Turing's predictions is called Eugene Goostman. The Russian-developed software emulated a 13-year-old Ukrainian boy who didn't speak much English and spoke to the judges via web chat for five minutes. Eugene managed to fool 10 out of 30 human judges, fulfilling Turing's prediction. However, Turing never actually specified the percentage of judges that needed to be fooled for a computer to pass, so it's debatable whether programs can ever be said to have passed the test. Some have argued that Turing's test was proposed as more of a philosophical question about a computer's abilities to mimic humans rather than an accurate test for artificial intelligence. If you want to try your luck against Eugene, you can visit www.princetonai.com forward slash bot. 
Gray Jackson and Kate Lamble. And you can get hold of all of our quickfire science episodes as their own podcasts from our website at thenakedscientists.com forward slash quickfire science. Now, sex is a tricky business for some organisms, and particularly the great diving beetle, which has to cling onto its mate underwater. But in solving this slippery problem, Mother Nature might have inadvertently come up with a recipe for an underwater sticky tape, as Victoria Gill explains. This is a study that comes from the Royal Society's journal Interface, and in this case, they're looking at beetle feet. Now, these are particularly amazing beetles because they're diving beetles, these quite large carnivorous beetles. Although they breathe air at the surface, they spend most of their life in the water, and that means that they have to mate underwater as well. How they do this is when they're in the water, they mount onto the females, and they have to keep hold of the females in this aquatic environment, and they've actually evolved special limbs that stick to the females' bodies to do this. So that's what this team were asking. They wanted to work out how these feet stick to the female beetle's body in this reversible way because if the male stays stuck to the female, he might not be able to get to the surface to breathe. And they figured out exactly how these amazing beetle feet work. And how do they work? What do they do? So they've actually looked at a very, very fine scale with microscopes, essentially filming these beetle feet attaching and detaching from the female body. And they've measured the forces that have produced the strength of this attachment. And they produce these amazing videos that you can see on the Naked Scientist's website. And what they reveal is that there are physical structures on the bristles on the ends of the beetle's feet, tiny little plungers or suction cups. So they looked at two species, and one of them, the more primitive species, has little spatulas on the ends of these bristles that sort of act like a reversible tape that sort of slide over the female's body and seem to have some kind of adhesion and they they slide around and then peel off. And then the other more evolved beetle has even more amazing bristles on its feet. It has tiny little what look like sink plungers, they're little circular suction cups that actually stick to the female with this pressure and then can be just pulled off and released. And they look just like a sink plunger. It's really remarkable at the fine scale. If they stick on and they stick on really hard, how do they get them off again? That was one of the things that surprised them because the more primitive beetle has what just looks like a bristle with a flat end. It looks kind of like just a a spatula that sort of slaps down onto the female's body. But actually it has these little fine hairs that attach like sticky tape and it it has channels on these hairs that allow liquid to seep through. So it's like an adhesive sticky tape that seems to work underwater. So that's how that works. By peeling those spatulas slowly off the female's body, they can detach easily. The Suction cups, it's literally like a suction cup device that we might stick up a sign onto a window or something like that. They just attach and then they pull off. So you can see it in these videos. They put one of these suction cups onto a female's body and then they just pull it off. And you just see that with additional force, they have to sort of release themselves with a bit of a tug, but it just pops off. This is all very interesting from a biology point of view, but I can hear the, the man and woman in the street saying, why are we spending well, Chinese taxpayers' money looking at this? But why is this useful? Well, actually, biomimetics in general is an area that's really, really useful for in terms of robot design. There's a lot of designers of flying robots and drones that are looking at the way animals fly in order to produce more efficient and smaller and more miniaturised drones. Spider silk is another classic example where nature can do something that we can't do, produce something that's incredibly stretchy, incredibly tough and incredibly strong. And this is another challenge. Actually, sticking things together underwater is really, really tricky. We've got loads of adhesives and engineering 
engineering devices that can stick things together in air, but aquatic environments make things like adhesives really, really difficult. So if we can see how animals are managing this in a reversible, really efficient way as part of their, their life and part of their method of survival, then this is a very fundamental start to being able to produce something that we'd be able to use in engineering. And you can imagine underwater engineering in terms of shipping, in terms of bridge building, is actually really important. Victoria Gill on the sticky feet of the great diving beetle. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Hannah Critchlow. Now, scientists at Cambridge University have used a 3D printer to reconstruct the spine of King Richard III, whose 500-year-old remains were discovered buried underneath a car park in Leicester in 2012. The results, which were published in the Lancet Medical Journal, confirmed that the king had an S-shaped twist to his spine called scoliosis. Naked scientist, Greer Jackson. In 2012, archaeologists uncovered the remains of a 33-year-old male lying a few metres below a car park in Leicester. The skeleton, covered in weaponry injuries, lay bunched up in what is believed to have once been a grave in an old medieval friary. Some historical records, and even Shakespeare, have claimed that Richard was a hunchback with a limp and a withered arm. But the body the archaeologists found was hunchless. Instead, the bones of the spine appear to have been curved in an S-shape, which might suggest Richard had a condition called scoliosis. To find out whether this was really the case, Cambridge scientist Piers Mitchell and his colleagues have used a 3D printer to produce a replica spine of the former monarch. I went to meet him to find out whether Shakespeare was using poetic licence or was on the right lines. The body itself was excavated by Joe Appleby, who works at the University of Leicester. And she was as surprised as everyone else to find this skeleton so early on in the excavation of the friary. She identified that there was a burial lying on its back that had a clear spinal deformity. And what was interesting was that the grave wasn't quite long enough for him, so that his head is all scrunched up. So it looks very much like this was a fairly hastily buried person and not someone who was buried in pomp and circumstance, as we might expect a ruler who died when there wasn't going to be a change of dynasty. So describe to me what we're seeing in this picture and what led you to believe that this might be, in fact, King Richard. When you look at this burial, we can see that there's a marked curve to the spine in the thoracic area of the spine. So that's the part of the spine where the rib cage is. And this shows that this person had a deformity of their spine in life. So the spine was of particular interest. What sort of process did the spine undergo? Well, the first thing to do is to look at the spine in the ground, take appropriate photographs so we can then measure angles later. And then having excavated the skeleton and cleaned all the bones, we can look at each individual bone and see if they look normal or abnormal. Then bones underwent further imaging with CT scanning, which allows you to do a 3D reconstruction virtually on a computer. The guys at Loughborough used a clever programme to then print these bones using a special plastic polymer. Um, so the printout basically looks like white plastic bones. And then to recreate everything, my colleague at Leicester, Bruno Morgan, took the bones and realigned them. And this then allowed us to create a 3D version of the spine. Because when you look down at a burial, you can only really see it in two dimensions. Whereas once we created a 3D recreation of the spine, we can actually see that this was a spiral twist. And that's very much what we see in modern patients today with scoliosis. The original photographs showed that he had a scoliosis which had about 70 to 80 degrees of curve, which is quite significant. 
using modern evidence from patients who have a scoliosis of this degree of curve, we can start to consider how much it would have affected him. So most people think, oh, he must have been in loads of pain with a curve like that. Well, in fact, a lot of people with scoliosis don't get any pain in their back. The second thing to think about is his appearance. If you have a straight spine, you're going to be a bit taller than if your spine is twisted. And so looking at modern patients, we can estimate that he would have been about two inches shorter than he would otherwise have been if he'd had a normal spine. However, we can see that the top and bottom of his spine were absolutely normal. So the bones in his neck and in his lumbar spine were fine. So he wouldn't have had a tilt to his head. He would have had a normal forward-looking head with normal neck movements. So a lot of the things we see in Richard III's description by Shakespeare aren't borne out by the evidence either of the burial in the ground or of the reconstruction that we've made. Shakespeare was clearly writing over a century after Richard III died, and so there's no way Shakespeare would have ever met Richard III and probably never met anyone that had seen Richard III. So Shakespeare was right that Richard had a spinal deformity, but he was wrong that he would probably not have had the limp that Shakespeare described. He probably wouldn't have had a significant hunchback. And similarly, there's no evidence for a withered arm as well. The bones of the arms and the legs all look perfectly symmetric. So what's next on the cards with Richard III's remains? Is there any remaining mysteries to be solved? Further research that is ongoing is looking at the weapon injuries that he has, looking at his genetics, partially to see if he has any genes that might predispose to scoliosis, but also to look at other information we can tell from him. For example, certain genes tell you what colour eyes, hair and so on an individual had. Piers Mitchell speaking with Greer Jackson. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories we've been discussing, as well as finding out that our faces apparently evolved to withstand being punched, then you can go to our website at thenakedscientists.com forward slash news. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Hannah Critchlow. On to our main topic for this week now, Alzheimer's disease. And the reason we've chosen to talk about it is because this week marks the 150th birthday of Alois Alzheimer, the man who first described the disease over 100 years ago in 1906. But what is Alzheimer's disease and how would you recognise it? The condition is one of a number of disorders that we collectively call dementias. These are progressive diseases that gradually rob sufferers of their mental faculties. They also become more common as we age. In countries like the UK, one in six people over the age of 80 are affected to some degree. But it also has a very profound effect on the people who care for victims of Alzheimer's. Susie Hewer is a Guinness World Record holder for her extreme knitting. This year she crocheted a 139 metre long crochet chain while simultaneously running the London Marathon. Why did she do this? Well, to raise awareness for Alzheimer's after her mum, Peggy, developed the disease. She started to get quite depressed. She was very withdrawn. Then the next phase was she started to have wandering incidents. And because she'd lived with us and my husband worked at home, it hadn't been really a problem until then. But one day he came downstairs and he found her sitting outside on the steps because he wouldn't where she was. And she said, well, I couldn't get in. And he said, well, why didn't you ring the doorbell? And she hadn't thought about that. The next thing that sort of changed our lives dramatically was... I left her in the library while she chose the book. I went over the road to the cash point and came back again five minutes later and she wasn't there. So I looked up and down the road, couldn't see her, went running one way and thankfully I found her walking really fast with her head down. I said, Mum, what's going on? She said, well, you moved the car. I didn't know where you were, so I'm heading for home. She was heading in completely the wrong direction and the car was actually outside. 
So at that point, we realised that the wandering could become a problem, so I left my job to care for her full-time. And for a while, it was sort of all right, because we could go out together and we'd go around gardens, and little by little, these things disappeared from her. And then we started to enter the really unpleasant phase She didn't sleep at night at all. Then she became doubly incontinent, and it's so humiliating for the person. But thankfully, by that stage, she was sort of beyond knowing what was going on. Susie Hewer recounting her personal experience of what happened to her mother, who developed Alzheimer's disease. Well, with us this week to explain more about the causes of Alzheimer's disease, how we can further Susie's mission of raising awareness of the condition and how scientists are trying to develop treatments to halt or reverse the disease are Chris Dobson from the Department of Chemistry at Cambridge University, Jodie Mason, a biochemist at Essex University, and Oxford neuroscientist Richard Wade Martins. Hello to all of you. First, um, Chris, tell us what's actually going on in the brains of people who have Alzheimer's disease to cause these symptoms? The fundamental thing that's happening is that our brain cells, our neurons, are becoming damaged and ultimately dying. The result is that we find it more difficult to remember new things. We start, as the disease progresses, to begin to have difficulty in recalling things we knew before. And ultimately, as you heard from Susie's story, you begin to lose a great deal of control of daily activities and ultimately you don't even recognise your friends and relatives. What causes those nerve cells to die? Well, we now know that it's caused by pathogenic agents. Now, pathogenic agents in this case are not bacteria or viruses from the outside world. They're actually species which develop from our own molecules, in particular proteins. And what happens is that these protein molecules, and proteins, I should say, carry out every process that occurs in our bodies, breathing, moving, eating, thinking, all are carried out by proteins. We have about 100,000 different proteins, and they carry out all these functions because of their intricate structures. And the way that one can think about these is proteins are made from a series of building blocks called amino acids, But exact order of the building blocks determines which protein you make. And this information is stored in our genomes, in our DNA. So when proteins are made in the cell, they come out as long, thin chains. And to function, they have to fold up into very specific, beautifully intricate structures. And then they carry out their functions. But sometimes these molecules, which are packed together very closely in our cells so we can do fast chemistry and pass on messages start to clump together. They misfold, they lose their correct structures and start to clump together. In Alzheimer's disease, the primary protein that's involved or a fragment of a protein is called the A-beta peptide. And when this protein aggregates, it forms the familiar clumps and plaques in the, the disease. But actually, we now know that it's not these plaques as such that cause the damage. It's a smaller aggregates about the same size as viruses or bacteria that actually interact with the cells and move around and cause the disease to spread. And we can understand how the disease develops through the cells dying and how this can then spread to other parts of the brain. And Jodie, that uh, A-beta peptide that Chris is talking about, where does that come from and what is it? Well, the A-beta peptide, it's produced from a much, much bigger protein called the amyloid precursor protein. And a couple of enzymes, molecular scissors, come along and snip out this small section from the amyloid precursor protein. And that produces this very small peptide. It's about 37 to 43 amino acids. And it's that peptide that's incredibly sticky. It self-associates and then it forms into these very toxic amyloid plaques. So cells normally make 
the beta amyloid precursor protein. It's part of what your cells normally make as part of going about their cellular business in your brain. And for some reason, a chunk of it gets chopped off, which then is what starts to build up into these aggregates in the brain that ultimately lead to Alzheimer's. That's correct. And these amyloid plaques are exactly the things that a Lois Alzheimer would have seen when he was looking down his microscope. That's a very nice description. And the interesting thing is that Alzheimer's is one of a number of diseases that include Parkinson's disease, motor neuron disease, and even type 2 diabetes, which are associated with these aggregation phenomena of proteins. And what we now know, again, is that our proteins all have a tendency to aggregate, but there are lots of protective mechanisms that come in. Some of them are very emotive words like molecular chaperones that look after our proteins and stop them making these improper interactions. But as we get older, these mechanisms start to get less efficient. And so the molecules start to have a higher risk of sticking together. And once they stick together, then the process is started and and progresses. And that's the onset of disease. I was going to ask you about that because we read in the beginning that one in six people over the age of 80 is affected to some degree. But that means five out of six people, Jody, aren't affected. So what influences the likelihood of people having this big protein chopped up into these small bad bits of protein that then build up? Well, as far as we know, it's a peptide that's being produced naturally throughout life, expressed in all tissues. But for some reason, I mean, age is probably the biggest risk factor of all, of course. As you live longer, you accumulate more of this peptide. For people with early onset Alzheimer's disease, they're producing more of this peptide. So these scissors are coming in and and cutting more often, or there are mutations within the peptide itself that makes it more sticky and therefore more susceptible to, to aggregate, to stick together into these very toxic plaques. So it's probably down to chaperones not removing the peptide efficiently. But as I said, age is the biggest risk factor. So as you get older, your risks of contracting Alzheimer's disease increases exponentially. Anything else people can do? Chris, to minimise their risk? Because there's some, it might be apocryphal, claim that people in India have lower rates of Alzheimer's disease and some have suggested that it could be turmeric in the curry that they're fond of because turmeric is an antioxidant and it stops you burning out your brain cells and making these proteins that build up pathologically. I think that there are a lot of very interesting ideas out there but actually very few of them have got good statistical evidence and by far the biggest risk factor, as Jody says, is, is age. And it's really dramatic. You know, at the age of 65, one or two people in 100 will have symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. By the time you reach 85, it could be one in three. And again, I think it's just chance that does this largely if you don't have a particular genetic mutation. And just to be clear, this is the loss of brain cells because these these proteins are toxic to the brain cells and kill them off. Absolutely. Once these aggregates start accumulating, and they could start perhaps 20 years before many of the symptoms begin, then they start to kill the cells and then it becomes a sort of chain reaction, a progressive reaction. But going back to your original comment, In terms of numbers, there are nearly a million people in Britain with Alzheimer's disease. There are over 5 million in the US. Worldwide, it's estimated that there are 40 million. More than half of those are in low- and middle-income countries. So it's not just a disease associated with the affluent world because longevity is increasing everywhere. And it's predicted in the next 35 or 40 years that number will increase by at least a factor of three. That's worrying statistics there. And 
the future generation now, so kids that are growing up now, I think it's been estimated that one in two of them will live past 85. And so they've got a really high risk of developing Alzheimer's if it's a natural disease of growing old. So in which case, Jodie, I believe that as well as studying the biochemistry of what causes Alzheimer's disease, you've also been working on video games in order to try and communicate this complicated biochemical pathway to kids and to try to get them more involved in Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's and understanding it. Yeah, that's right. So we've created a game called Cascade and I've teamed up with a chap called Gaz Bushel from Feiju, a company that make computer games. And the idea is that we, we want to educate really anybody who plays computer games, but of course a big demographic is, is young people, teenagers who access these things. And in Cascade, you actually step inside the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's disease. So you can look around you, you can see the neurons, these brain cells all around you. You can see the amyloid precursor protein and the enzymes, these molecular scissors that come in and snip out that peptide segment. And you can watch that toxic self-association, that clumping to form these amyloid plaques. And because it has this sort of intergalactic feel, the only real artistic license that we've taken is that the player is controlling a spaceship. But a lot of the things that that spaceship does really mirrors the therapeutic intervention strategies that labs like my own at Essex and Chris's over in Cambridge and drugs companies are trying to do. So, for example, to block those scissors and stop them cutting APP, or if the beta amyloid peptide does get produced, to stop it from self-associating, so somehow detoxify it or stop it clumping. That's an innovative way of trying to switch people on to trying to understand this really complicated biological process that will probably affect them in the future. Well, earlier this week, we took Cascade for a test drive. Kate Lamble accompanied Gaz Bushell, the game's developer, into Coleridge Community College to see what a class of 13-year-old students made of it. Cascade is a game where you fly around this infinite landscape effectively from brain cell to brain cell fighting this malevolent force which is destroying everything in its path and that force happens to be Alzheimer's disease Cascade is a game with a difference players control a spaceship which flies around a universe of brain cells trying to protect them from attackers As Gaz explained, it's all based on the actual science of Alzheimer's Jodie was explaining the amyloid cascade hypothesis to me in kind of layman's terms, I guess. And being a, a programmer, the more that he would tell me about these aspects of the biochemistry involved in what was going on in Alzheimer's disease, the more I could see each of those individual elements would break down um, into a game component. OK, so what am I aiming for? So you see that giant orange thing? Yeah. That's a plaque. Yeah, so you want to go into the source of that to try and stop it from forming. So the attackers represent the toxic, sticky beta amyloid protein, which can build up and disrupt the brain in Alzheimer's. Players break them down, keeping the brain cells healthy and delaying the onset of the disease, just like drugs are trying to do in real patients at the moment. It's the same as most games, you know, you're generally fighting something. We might as well make it so that you're fighting something very real. Through that process uh, of engagement with it, you can understand more about the science, but also have an engaging and uh, fun interactive experience. Uh, my name's Jacob and I'm 13 and I'm from Cambridge. And I just had a go. It's stunning. It's out of this world how good it is. We tested the game on the newly released Oculus system, which is essentially a virtual reality headset that gives you a 3D immersive gaming experience. The novelty of the system might have contributed to some of the students' excitement. Does anyone want to go now? 
that the game is also being released for free on the 2D Oya system. Then Gaz and Jody hope it will launch on major platforms like the PlayStation and Nintendo. The concept of the game looks pretty cool. It's like, it's like really cool. I'm Julian, I'm 13, and I'm from Canada. It's just so breathtaking, and I can imagine a lot of games being adapted to this. By raising the public's awareness of Alzheimer's, particularly with the young, Gaz and Jody hope that more can be achieved in terms of care, empathy and funding. But does this approach actually work? The students we met certainly seem to be enthusiastic about gaming, but when asked what they learnt, admittedly only after a few minutes on the system, they didn't seem to have grasped what Alzheimer's was quite yet. Brain tissue in your head starts to deteriorate. I don't really know. I think I know someone has it. All right, so where's the gas cloud? Oh, there it is. So is it really an educational tool? I asked their teacher for her thoughts. I'm Henry Tunnicliffe. I'm a science teacher at Parkside Federation Academies on the Coleridge campus. And I have rarely seen some of the Year 8s as excited as they are about the game that you've just shown them. The virtual reality headset has inspired those children. I think anything like this, which will inspire this sort of enthusiasm... It's a great teaching tool because they get interested in it, but actually as the game is going on, they're beginning to work out what they're doing and then linking that with the stuff that I would then be teaching them. My family have had some personal experience of Alzheimer's. It's a very misunderstood condition, and yet it's going to affect more and more people with an ageing population. And anything that can be done to actually increase not just the knowledge of it, but the awareness of it can only be a good thing. Coleridge Community College testing the game with developer Gaz Bushel. And if you want to have a go, you can download it completely for free at www.ouya.tv slash games. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with me, Hannah Critchlow. We're talking about Alzheimer's disease this week and with us is Oxford neuroscientist Richard Wade-Martins who's trying to learn more about the disease process by turning patients' skin cells into brain cells. We'll talk to Richard in a moment, but first, back to Chris Dobson. Chris, you're a little bit like the spaceship in that video game that we demoed earlier. Your day-to-day life is devoted to trying to find drugs that will actually target the problem proteins in Alzheimer's rather than just masking the symptoms. Well, I've been described as many things. I mean, our view is that, like many of the diseases in the past, or all of the diseases, I think, in the past, really, until you understand the real mechanism it's almost impossible to develop effective drugs. And I think this has been one of the problems so far in trying to treat Alzheimer's disease. So what we're trying to do, in fact, is to take the A-beta peptide that Jody mentioned and understand exactly the mechanism by which it begins to clump together, the steps that it goes through, uh, how it forms species that are toxic, why they're toxic, and how it eventually forms the plaques. And we've found a lot out about that, and we've done that in the test tube. And so what we want to do now, and what we're beginning to do now, is to say, does the same sort of thing happen in living systems? And we've taken very simple organisms. You're going to ask me about the fruit fly, which I is one of the ones... To, I've <coughs> heard rumours that you work with the common or garden fruit fly that maybe hover above people's bananas as um, they get a little we bit do. Well, I hope these ones don't hover around people's bananas, but... 
But what we're really trying to do then is actually to generate what we sometimes call test tubes with wings that we can put by transgenic means, by genetic engineering, the same peptide, the A-beta peptide, into the brains of fruit flies. And then we can choose lines of flies which have much the same sort of symptoms as you see in Alzheimer's disease. They form plaques, they have difficulty moving around, we haven't checked very carefully what they can remember, but we know that they actually don't live so long and so forth. And that gives us a system where we can look at thousands or millions of flies to get very good statistics on the way that molecules interact with the A-beta peptide. And so what we're able to do is to take molecules that we found in the test tube and see what effect they have in these model organisms. And so you're able to really screen new compounds or compounds that are in existence at the Absolutely. moment and find out if they can revert this misfolding of this protein that's toxic to nerve cells and stop it from causing Alzheimer's. Absolutely, and I think there are really two aims that we would have. One is to reduce the risk of it, the chance of this happening, which, of course, would be a bit like a sort of statin for heart disease. It just makes it less likely you'll get it. And the other is actually to try to do therapeutic, a real cure, or at least to find a molecule that will stop this process occurring so that the disease doesn't progress. And so we're able to test these ideas out in these simple systems. I mean, the drugs that are currently used for those people that have Alzheimer's, what do they do? Do they not affect all this protein misfolding and try and revert that? Well, actually, what they don't do is actually slow down at all the progression of disease. There's no evidence that any current drugs actually have an effect on the progression of disease, I'm afraid. What drugs do do is help to alleviate some of the symptoms. And so that's really all we can do for patients at the moment. But our hope, of course, is that we can find drugs that will actually suppress the processes that give rise to disease. And that's why it's so imperative that you continue your work looking at this chemistry, this basic biology, and trying to develop new compounds. Absolutely, and I think we heard from some young people. I think they're the people who need to be aware of what's going on because it takes a long time to develop drugs, and the amount we spend on research in Alzheimer's disease is minute compared with the amount we spend on cancer and heart disease, even though the cost to society and the economy are much greater of Alzheimer's disease. J.D.? Yeah, I mean, just following on from that point, really, I mean, it costs the UK economy £23 billion a year, you know, which is huge. And with the numbers going through the roof, that's only going to get a lot worse. You know, it's set to hit a million and then start doubling every sort of 25 years. And, I mean, with the game in particular, we're trying to get young people interested in an area that they probably don't think is going to affect them, but the young people of today are going to become the carers of tomorrow. And I suppose previously there was quite a lot of stigma around Alzheimer's disease, as there was with cancer. So patients that had cancer, you know, 50 years ago, they didn't want to mention the C word. I think it's absolutely right. 50 years ago, if someone was diagnosed with cancer, the question was, did you tell them? And the answer is, you didn't normally tell them because there was almost nothing you could do. And I think the developments in the 1970s, particularly the 1971 National Cancer Act in the US, opened up the whole field and people started talking about it, therapists started appearing, a lot more money was put into it, a lot more people were engaged in it. And that's absolutely what we need to do now. And so these methods that Jody is talking about, to get people aware of the disease and aware that we can do something, I'm very optimistic. I think we can have dramatic effects on the onset of disease and prevention of disease. But it's going to take a long time, it's going to take a lot of effort, just as cancer did.
Well, let's bring in Richard Wade Martins, who's from Oxford University, because we've heard about the development of agents in a fruit fly and also in a test tube. But what Richard's trying to do is actually to take hairs from people's arms and take the cells from those hairs and reprogram them to become brain cells so that we can more faithfully model real human neurons in a dish and then test out perhaps some of the compounds that you've been making, Chris. Richard, tell us about your technique. How does it work? So the way this works is we have patients in the clinic that we study in great detail. We understand they have Alzheimer's. We may even understand they have a subtype of Alzheimer's with particular clinical features. So what we can then do is we can take a skin sample from these patients. Some groups will take hair plucks, as you've heard. Other groups will take a skin punch biopsy. So a skin punch biopsy is where you take a a small piece of skin, about the same size as you'd punch out a piece of paper from A4 paper using a hole punch. So you take this skin sample from somebody, you bring it back to the laboratory, and you chop up the bit of skin into little pieces, and you put it in a, a plastic tissue culture dish surrounded by a liquid medium the cells like to live in, And these skin cells will sink to the bottom of your plastic dish and they'll grow and over two or three weeks they'll fill the bottom of your plastic dish. Now you have skin cells. And what we can do, based on some work that uh, was originally developed by a chap called Shinya Yamanaka in Japan in 2006, he won the Nobel Prize for it in 2012, is we can turn those skin cells into stem cells. So we use viruses that make these special genes called reprogramming factors. There's four reprogramming factors you need. You can treat these skin cells and they become stem cells. Over a period of weeks and months, you can grow these stem cells in the laboratory. And once you've got stem cells, you can make any cell type you like. And when you think about these neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and motor neuron disease, it's a particular type of brain cell that dies off. In Alzheimer's, it's what's called cortical neurons. It's the neurons that make the part of your brain at the front and the top, brain cells that make you think and remember. And we can make these types of neurons in a dish, grow them out, and over a period of it takes about 100 days to turn these stem cells into these brain cells. And then we can study them and start to understand what's different about these brain cells from patients and from controls, from healthy people. And equally, I suppose, Richard, the other benefit of doing this is that you've got real human nerve cells to study, but also you can take some of the chemicals that Chris is trying to develop to affect this folding or misfolding process and ask how does this affect the way that these human nerve cells behave, which means you're a sort of step up in the clinical testing of these agents. Absolutely. You're working with human brain cells, which is so important. And this stem cell technology is having a revolutionary effect right across medicine. But I think in neuronal diseases and diseases of the brain, it's particularly important and powerful because you can't drill a hole in somebody's head and take out some neurons to study. You have to make them as best as you can in the dish. And once we've grown them in the dish, people have shown that these nerve cells from Alzheimer's patients have some of these protein problems, if you like, that we've talked about. They accumulate this A-beta peptide. They accumulate these tangles, these aggregates inside the neurons that start to kill the nerve cells off both in the brain but also in the dish and then you can take therapies that we know work in the clinic and test them on our dish and see if they have an effect on the the nerve cells that we've got but then you enter the world of testing and screening for new compounds and you're actually using brain cells from patients with Alzheimer's to test to screen to look for new compounds it's a, a very powerful exciting technique it's an exciting time in the field. Can you also ask other questions such as How do the nerve cells respond to these pathological proteins building up? Does it stop talking to other cells as efficiently as it would have done before, which may explain some of the features of Alzheimer's disease in people who are affected? Alzheimer's view of Alzheimer's was that these neurons are dying, but actually we think decades before the neurons die, 
they stop working properly, they stop talking to each other. So the brain is a network of neurons in constant communication. And the idea is that maybe 10, 20, 30 years before the neurons die, they stop talking to each other. If we can understand how they've stopped talking to each other decades before the disease, we can enter the era of predictive and preventative therapies. And we've talked about two particular pathologies, types of protein aggregates you find in the brain. There's a beta peptide and there's also a tau protein. And in my own work, funded by the Alzheimer's Society, we're taking these brain cells and we're deliberately deleting the tau protein from the genome, from the chromosomes of those cells, and then seeing what effect does the A-beta peptide have on these cells. So if you manipulate one of these two proteins, do you make the disease less severe, at least in your cell culture model? And lastly, just very briefly, Richard, may what you're doing also hold the key to rescuing the affected brain in Alzheimer's? In other words, if we can make new nerve cells from skin stem cells, we could give people their own brain cells back to perhaps make up the deficit of cells they've lost to the disease and therefore help them to remain healthy for longer. So ultimately, that may be possible. So that's a, a dream for many of these neurodegenerative diseases, such as Parkinson's and motor neuron disease, and also Alzheimer's. But it's really difficult. You know, you've got a, a loss of brain cells right across the brain, particularly in the case of Alzheimer's. So the cell transplantation therapy may be possible. But I think most scientists would probably think that if we can work out why the disease occurs and to prevent it happening, to halt it early on, that's probably going to be more realistically beneficial than transplanting neurons, which is, is possible but fraught with technical difficulties. Um, we've heard on Twitter that how come it takes a lifetime for someone to develop Alzheimer's and show the symptoms, but when you have your cells in the dish, they can develop Alzheimer's within 100 days of their lifespan? I suppose it depends what you mean by developing Alzheimer's. So when we say that a patient develops Alzheimer's, say, at the age of 70, there is some evidence from brain imaging studies and other studies that actually things may be going wrong in your brain at the age of 25. So it may be that actually neuronal changes happen much, much earlier, decades before somebody will actually show Alzheimer's disease. So when I say that in the dish cells develop signs of Alzheimer's disease, what I mean is they show some changes in the way that critical proteins such as A-beta peptide and tau are regulated and how they function. So when people make stem cells from patients with Alzheimer's, they typically take individuals who have Alzheimer's for genetic reasons. They have a genetic mutation in a gene which leads to Alzheimer's disease at a young age, say about the age of, say, 40, 45. So these individuals are getting Alzheimer's earlier and it's genetically inherited. And then once you've made the stem cells and differentiate these cells into neurons, you wait 100 days, you see molecular and biochemical changes in the way that A-beta peptide is produced and the way that tau is modified, particularly with a type of modification called phosphorylation, where a phosphate group is added onto tau. So these biochemical changes of elevated A-beta peptide and tau phosphorylation can be seen in these neurons in these patients after 100 days. But I think it's a little bit short of saying these neurons actually have Alzheimer's after 100 days. Chris? I think this, again, it's a very, very interesting question and uh, one that isn't really understood in detail. But I think that our sort of feeling about these diseases in general is that proteins all have a tendency to aggregate. So they're folding and coming to form these wonderful structures that do their function. But at the same time, there's a certain fraction of them which don't fold properly, and so they aggregate. And the reason that we don't see the effects of these until old age, we think, is because there are all these protective mechanisms that come in, particularly these molecular chaperones that try and look after these naughty proteins that are trying to get together. And the effect is that they inhibit these processes. 
And I think that um, it's now becoming clear that there are a lot of very specialized chaperones that are not just within the cells, within the neurons, but actually are also outside the cells. And there may be even effects coming from different types of cells which affect neurons. So I think the situation within the intact brain, particularly the protective mechanisms that exist, may actually differ in that sort of time scale when this regulatory control is lost from that which happens within an individual cell. But again, it's a really fascinating point and, and something's absolutely crucial that we understand. So some of these treatments that you're trying to develop may not revolve purely around stopping the misfolding of the protein in so much as targeting the protein itself. You could actually be providing new chaperone proteins or similar molecules that do the sort of Alzheimer's equivalent of a leg brace in someone with a weak leg. They prop the proteins in the right shape so they can't misfold in this way. Well, that's absolutely right. And there are potential almost artificial chaperones, if you like. One type is antibodies. Antibodies are proteins that bind to very specific molecules. And if you can get them to bind to the molecules which are likely to aggregate, then they have much the same effect as, as chaperones in inhibiting the proteins sticking together. But the but key th question we must finish on is by asking you, how long before we get to a stage where we have something tangible to offer people rather than just as you were saying with Hannah that at the moment we only have drugs that make the symptoms a bit more tolerable we don't have anything that stops the disease process I think you know conventional drug takes 10-15 years to develop and I think one has to put in perspective the fact that bacterial viral diseases people have been working for two three hundred years to understand the origins of disease Serious research on Alzheimer's disease has really only been going for 30 years, so we're at very early stages. But there are hopes that there could be some breakthroughs. I think personally, you know, one would find a cocktail, a whole range of different drugs that might be effective on different people or in combination. And some of these drugs may already be in existence for other conditions. And this is always one of the hopes in drug discovery, that you'll find a compound that does something and was developed to do something, but actually has some other effects. So many people are looking at molecules which are already authorised for, for usage as drugs that perhaps just might have effects in Alzheimer's disease. And there are classic examples of this. I mean, one of them, for example, is amitriptyline, which is used in pain control that was developed first as an antidepressant. But in much, much lower doses, actually, is very effective in pain control. So we might find these treatments more rapidly. But I think Alzheimer's disease, dementia is going to be like cancer. It's going to be a process of attrition. We'll start to find treatments that begin to be effective and then we'll get better and better and better at doing it. But I think it will be like cancer or heart disease. It will be a long struggle. Jody? The, the only thing I would add is the other thing we don't have at present is a good biomarker. We don't have any real way of saying that somebody absolutely had Alzheimer's until after they pass away and then, and then you look at the brain. So the other thing, I mean, Richard touched on earlier, which is a lot of the damage is already done by the time those clinical features start to present themselves. So I think when you do, if and when you do find this sort of wonder drug, you're going to have to get it in pretty early on, maybe a couple of decades before any of the symptoms are, are there. Perhaps I could add something to that. I mean, one of the big challenges, again, in Alzheimer's disease is this biomarker problem. And it's not just for diagnosis. It's that if you want to develop a drug, you want to know if it works. And to know if it works, you really would like to know in less than 10 years if it works. And I think that there are a lot of efforts now going on to find 
biochemical markers of the disease, you know, which you could ideally do with a blood test or something like this. But that's where you can um, presumably tell. Where, where your work comes in, Richard, because that's sort of what you're able to do. You can look at these cells and ask, do they change their behaviour in response to compounds like Chris is developing when you chuck them on them? Yes, it's not really a biomarker, though. I mean, the, the biomarker point is, is essential for two reasons. First of all, you need to be able to identify these patients before they become patients. And Chris's comparison with statins is absolutely right. You need a biomarker to detect elevated risk factors, such as cholesterol in cardiovascular disease, and then a therapy which reduces those risk markers, which is a preventative treatment much earlier than a, a treatment treatment to, to cure people once they're ill. Richard, thank you very much. Richard Wade Martins from Oxford University and before him, Chris Dobson from Cambridge University and Jodie Mason from the University of Essex. And finally, closing this week's show for us, Hannah has been taxing her brain in search of the answer to this tricky question of the week. This week, we wake ourselves up to flex mental muscle power over this. Hi, I'm Stefan Lincoln from Sweden. When we exercise our legs, we feel tired and the muscles burn from lactic acid. Is it the same with brain exercise? If brain fatigue is due to low blood sugar, is there a case to be made for homework candy? So that feeling of fogginess that comes with brain fatigue, you've probably experienced it at some point. Scientists haven't yet figured out the exact biochemical pathway leading to it, but it seems to be linked to, perhaps unsurprisingly, how much you use your brain and how much fuel it has available. Here's Dr Catherine Hall, brain energy expert from University College London, explaining what happens when muscles in your body get tired from too much exercise. When we've been exercising, lactic acid does build up in our muscle, but actually it probably doesn't cause the pain and muscle fatigue we feel after exercising. Instead, that is caused by a shortage of fuel and the build-up of lots of different molecules that are by-products of muscle activation. Lactic acid may be one of these molecules, or it may actually reduce muscle tiredness. In our brains, lactic acid also builds up when nerve cells are active, but nerve cells can use lactic acid as a fuel. So while it might be a sign of an active brain, if anything, it should stop our brains from being tired. Aha, so activating our brains actually provides a short burst of lactic acid, which is an actual fuel for our brain. So that shouldn't cause fogginess or brain fatigue. But surely this fuel burst will wear out at some point. We do get tired though, and it turns out a good dose of glucose does boost brain performance. And handily, eating some glucose is particularly good at boosting our ability to do tasks that use verbal memory, so it'll especially help you to do your French homework. You have to be careful though, as too much glucose will stop your brain working so well. By eating 38 M&Ms before starting your homework, you should get a brain boost that'll last you an hour or so. Watch out though, your brain isn't actually burning all that extra energy, so French homework won't stop you getting fat. Thank you, Catherine, who also adds that she doesn't want to be responsible for everybody reaching for the candy and a worldwide surge in type 2 diabetes with this answer. She does suggest that healthier, slow-release glucose treats, like maybe a banana, could also boost brain power. Or you could just take a break to refocus your mind, and that would probably do just as well. Well, moving on to... <coughs> this question that Nathan French wrote in with... Why do people sneeze differently? Is there any reason I can't change my sneeze to a quiet one? Are there any connections between personality and your type of sneeze? 
So, sneeze sound and volume. Is it linked to personality type? What do you think? And if you can help Hannah with the answer to that one, then drop us a line. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientist or you can find us on our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash the naked scientists many thanks to our contributors for this week chris dobson jody mason and richard wade martins thanks to hannah critchlow for joining me and to kate lamble for production do join us next week when we'll be rattling our cashirolas that's brazil's answer to the vuvuzela to celebrate the science behind the world cup the naked scientist comes to you from cambridge university it's supported by the welcome trust the epsrc and the stfc my name is chris smith thank you very much for listening until next time goodbye 